right, guys. Happy holidays. It's almost Christmas. Or for some people, Christmas. It's almost Christmas. It's 11.52 p.m. <laughs> December 24th, 2020. Wow. I'm not going to bore you guys with small chit chat tonight we're just going to get right to the good stuff <laughs> we left off in um, a promised land the book review promised land a promised land by former president Barack Obama we left off with chapter 19 and it seems to flow, so we'll just move on to the next chapter 20. The next time I met with Medvedev in person was in late September. When heads of state and government from around the world converged on Manhattan for the annual opening session of the UN General Assembly, UNGA Week, we called it. And for me and my foreign policy team, it represented a 72-hour sleep-depriving obstacle course with roads blocked and security tightened. New York traffic was more hellish than usual, even for the presidential motorcade. Practically every foreign leader wanted a meeting or at least a photo for the folks back home. There were consultations with the UN Secretary General meetings for me to chair, luncheons to attend, receptions to be hosted, causes to be championed, deals to be brokered, and multiple speeches to be written, including a major address before the General Assembly a sort of global state of the union that in the eight years we worked together, Ben and I somehow never managed to finish writing until 15 minutes before I was due to speak. <laughs> I think he's referring to Ben Shapiro. Despite the crazy schedule, Involved the site of the UN headquarters, its main building, a soaring white monolith overlooking the East River, 
always put me in a hopeful, expectant mood. I attributed this to my mother. I remember as a boy, maybe nine or ten, asking her about the UN and having her explain how after World War II, global leaders decided that they needed a place where people from a, di a diversity of countries could meet to resolve their differences peacefully. Quote, humans aren't that different from animals, Bar, she told me. We fear what we don't know. When we're afraid of people and feel threatened, it's easier to fight wars and do other stupid things. The United Nations is a way for countries to meet and learn about each other and not be so afraid, close quote. <coughs> Excuse me. As always, my mother possessed a reassuring certainty that despite humanity's primal impulses, reason, logic, and progress would eventually prevail after our conversation I imagined the goings-on at the U.N. to be like an episode of Star Trek with Americans, Russians, Scots, Africans, and Vulcans exploring the stars together, or the, quote, it's a small world, close quote, display at Disneyland where Moon-faced children with different skin tones and colorful costumes would all sing a cheerful tune. Later, for a homework assignment, I read the UN's 1945 founding charter and was struck by how its mission matched my mother's optimism, quote, to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war, close quote, reaffirm faith in fundamental human rights, establish conditions under which justice and respect for the obligations arising from treaties and other sources of international law can be maintained and promote social progress and better standards of life in larger freedom. Needless to say, the UN had not always lined up, lived up to these lofty intentions. Like its ill-fated predecessor, the League of Nations, the organization was only as strong as its most powerful members allowed it to be. Any significance, any significant action required consensus among the five permanent members of the Security Council. The United States, the Soviet Union, later 
Russia, the United Kingdom, France, and China. Each possessing an absolute veto. In the middle of the Cold War, the chances of reaching any consensus had been slim, which is why the UN had stood idle as Soviet tanks rolled into Hungary or U.S. planes dropped napalm on the Vietnamese countryside. Even after the Cold War, divisions within the Security Council continued to hamstring the UN's ability to tackle problems its members its member states lacked either the means or the collective will to reconstruct failing states like Somalia or prevent ethnic slaughter in places like Sri Lanka. Its peacekeeping mission depended on voluntary troop contributions from member states were consistently understaffed and ill-equipped. At times, the General Assembly devolved into a forum for posturing, hypocrisy, and one-sided condemnations of Israel. More than one UN agency became embroiled in corruption scandals while vicious autocracies like Khamenei's Iran and Assad's Syria would maneuver to get seats on the UN Human Rights Council. Within the Republican Party, the UN became a symbol of nefarious one-world globalism. Progressives bemoaned its impotence in the face of injustice, and yet I remained convinced that, for all its shortcomings, the UN served a vital function. UN reports and findings could sometimes shame countries into better behavior and strengthen international norms because of the UN's work in mediation and peacekeeping. Ceasefires had been brokered, conflicts had been averted, and lives had been saved. The UN played a role in more than 80 former colonies becoming sovereign nations. Its agencies helped lift tens of millions of people out of poverty, eradicated smallpox, 
and very nearly wiped out polio and guinea worm. Whenever I walk through the UN complex, my Secret Service detail brushing back the crowds of diplomats and staffers who typically milled along the wide carpeted corridors for a handshake or a wave, their faces reflecting every shape and hue of the human family, I was reminded that inside were, were scores of men and women who pushed against boulders every day, trying to convince governments to fund vaccination programs in schools for poor children, rallying the world to stop a minority group from being slaughtered or young women from being trafficked. trafficked. Men and women who anchored their lives to the same idea that had anchored my mother, an idea captured in a verse, a verse woven into a tapestry that hung in the great doomed, great domed General Assembly Hall. Quote, human beings are members of a whole in creation of one essence and soul. End quote. Ben informed me that those lines were written by the 13th century Persian poet Saadi, one of the most beloved figures in Iranian culture. We found this ironic given how much of my time at UNGA was devoted to trying to curb Iran's development of nuclear weapons. Apparently Khamenei and Ahmadinejad did not share the poet's gentle sensibilities. Since rejecting my offer of bilateral talks, Iran had shown no signs of scaling back its nuclear program. Its negotiate, negotiators continued to stall and bluster in sessions with 
P5 plus 1 members, insisting that Iran's centrifuges and enriched uranium stockpiles had entirely civilian purposes. These claims of innocence were spurious, but they provided Russia and China with enough of an excuse to keep blocking the Security Council from considering tougher sanctions against the regime. We continued to press our case and a pair of new developments helped bring about a shift in Russian attitudes. First, our arms control team, ably headed by non-proliferation expert Gary Samore, had worked with the International Atomic Energy Agency, IAEA, on a creative new proposal meant to test Iran's true intentions. Under the proposal, Iran would ship its existing stockpile of LEU to Russia, which would process it into HEU, highly enriched uranium and LEU, low enriched uranium. Russia would then transport the HEU to France, where it would be converted into a form of fuel that met Iran's legitimate civilian needs, civilian needs but had no possible military application. The proposal was a stopgap measure. It left Iran's nuclear architecture in place and would not prevent Iran from enriching more LEU in the future, but depleting its current stockpiles would delay, quote, breakout capacity, end quote, by up to a year, thus buying us time to negotiate a more permanent solution. Just as important, the proposal made Russia a key implementation partner and showed Moscow our willingness to exhaust all reasonable approaches when it came to Iran. During the course of UNGA, Russia signed off on the idea. We even referred to it as, quote, the Russia proposal, close quote. (laughs) Which meant that when the Iranians ultimately rejected the proposal, At a P5 plus one meeting held later that year in Geneva, they were not just thumbing their noses at the Americans. They were snubbing Russia, one of their few remaining defenders. Cracks in the Russian, cracks in the Russia-Iran relationship deepened after I handed Medvedev and Lavrov 
an intelligence bombshell during a private meeting on the margins of UNGA. We discovered that Iran was on the verge of completing construction of a secret enrichment facility buried deep inside a mountain near the ancient city of Qom, Q-O-M, Qom. Everything about the facility, its size, configuration, and location on a military installation indicated Iran's interest in shielding its activities from both detection and attack. Features inconsistent with a civilian program. I told Medvedev we were showing him the evidence first before we made it public because the time for half measures was over. Without Russian agreement on a forceful international response, the chance for a diplomatic resolution with Iran would likely slip away. Our presentation seemed to rattle the Russians rather than try to defend Iran's actions. Medvedev expressed his disappointment with the regime and acknowledged the need for a recalibration of the P5 plus one's approach. He went even further in public remarks afterward, telling the press that, quote, sanctions rarely lead to productive results, but in some cases sanctions are inevitable, close quote. For our side, this statement was a welcome surprise, confirming our growing sense of Medvedev's reliability as a partner, we decided against revealing the existence of the COM facility during a UN Security Council meeting on nuclear security issues that I was scheduled to chair. Although the iconic setting would have made for good theater. We needed time to thoroughly brief the IAEA and the other P5 plus one members. We also wanted to avoid drawing comparisons to the dramatic and ultimately discredited Security Council presentation regarding Iraqi WMDs made by Colin, Colin Pyle in the run-up to the Iraq war. Instead, we gave the story to the New York Times just before G20 leaders were scheduled to meet in Pittsburgh. The effect was galvanizing. Reporters speculated about possible Israeli missile strikes on Qom. Members of Congress called for immediate action at a joint press conference with French President Sarkozy and British Prime Minister Brown, I emphasized the need for a strong international response but refrained from getting specific on 
sanctions so as to avoid boxing in Medvedev before he'd had a chance to work through the issue with Putin. Assuming we could keep Medvedev engaged, we had just one more major diplomatic hurdle to clear, convincing a skeptical Chinese government to cast a vote for sanctions against one of its main oil suppliers. How likely is that? McFall asked me. Don't know yet, I said. Turns out avoiding a war is harder than getting into one. Seven weeks later, Air Force One touched down in Beijing for my first official visit to China. We were instructed to leave any non-governmental electronic devices on the plane and to operate under the assumption that our communications were being monitored. Even across oceans, Chinese surveillance capabilities were impressive. During the campaign, they hacked into our headquarters computer system. I took it as a positive sign for my election prospects. Their ability to remote, remotely convert any mobile phone into a recording device was widely known to make calls involving national security matters from our hotel. I had to go to a suite down the hall fitted with a scientific compartmented information facility, SCIF. A big blue tent plopped down in the middle of the room that hummed with an eerie 
psychedelic buzz designed to block any nearby listening devices. Some members of our team dressed and even showered in the dark to avoid the hidden cameras we could assume had been strategically placed in every room. Marvin, on the other hand, said he made it a point of walking around his room naked and with the lights on, whether out of pride or in protest wasn't entirely clear. Occasionally, the brazenness of Chinese intelligence verged on on comedy. At one point, my Commerce Secretary, Gary Locke, was on his way to a prep session when he realized he'd forgotten something in his suite. Upon opening the door, he discovered a pair of housekeepers making up his bed while two gentlemen in suits carefully thumbed through the papers on his desk. When Gary asked what they were doing, the men walked wordlessly past him and disappeared. The housekeepers never looked up, just moved on to changing out the towels in the bathroom as if Gary were invisible. Gary's story generated plenty of head shakes and chuckles from our team, and I'm sure that someone down the diplomatic food chain eventually filed a formal complaint. But no one brought up the incident when we sat down later for our official meeting with President Hu Jintao and the rest of the Chinese delegation. We had too much business to do with the Chinese and did enough of our own spying on them to want to make a stink. (laughs) This about summed up the state of U.S.-China affairs at the time. On the surface, the relationship Whedon inherited looked relatively stable without the high-profile diplomatic ruptures we'd seen with the Russians. Out of the gate, Tim Geithner and Hillary had met repeatedly with their Chinese counterparts and formalized a working group to address various bilateral concerns. In my meetings with President Hu during the London G20, we'd talked of pursuing win-win policies that could benefit our two countries, but beneath the diplomatic niceties lurked long-simmering tensions and mistrust, not only around specific issues like trade or espionage, but also around the fundamental question of what China's resurgence meant for the international order and America's position in the world.
that China and the United States had managed to avoid open conflict for more than three decades was not just luck from the sort from the start of China's economic reforms and decisive opening to the West back in the 1970s. The Chinese government had faithfully followed Deng Xiaoping's counsel to, quote, hide your strength and bid bide your time, close quote. Hide your strength and bide your time. It prioritized industrialization over a massive military buildup. It invited U.S. companies searching for low-wage labor to move their operations to China and cultivated successive U.S. administrations to help it obtain World Trade Organization, WTO, membership in 2001, which in turn gave China greater access to U.S. markets. Although the Chinese Communist Party maintained tight control over the country's policy politics, it made no effort to export its ideology. China transacted business with all comers, whether democracies or dictatorships, claiming virtue in not judging the way other countries managed their internal affairs. China could throw its elbows around when it felt its territorial claims being challenged and it bristled at Western criticism of its human rights record, but even on flashpoints like U.S. arms sales to Taiwan, Chinese officials did their best to ritualize disputes, registering displeasure through strongly worded letters or the cancellation of bilateral meetings, but never letting things escalate to the point where they might impede the flow of shipping containers full of Chinese-made sneakers, electronics, and auto parts into U.S. ports and a Walmart near you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 
This strategic patience had helped China husband its resources and avoid costly foreign adventures. It had also helped obscure how systematically China kept evading, bending, or breaking just about every agreed-upon rule of international commerce during its, quote, peaceful rise, close quote. For years, it had used state subsidies as well as currency manipulation and trade dumping to artificially depress the price of its exports and undercut manufacturing operations in the United States. Its disregard for labor and environmental standards accomplished the same thing. Meanwhile, China used non-tariff barriers like quotas and embargoes. It also engaged in the theft of U.S. intellectual property and placed constant pressure on U.S. companies doing business in China to surrender key technologies to help speed China's ascent up the global supply chain. None of this made China unique. Just about every rich country from the United States to Japan had used mercantilist strategies at various stages of their development to boost their economies. And from China's perspective, you could not argue with the results. Only a generation after millions died of mass starvation, China had transformed itself into the world's third, third largest economy, accounting for nearly half of the world's steel production. 20% of its manufacturing and 40% of the clothing Americans bought. What was surprising was Washington's mild response. Back in the early 1990s, leaders of organized labor had sounded the alarm about China's increasingly unfair trading practices, and they'd found plenty of congressional Democrats 
particularly from Rust Belt states, to champion the cause. The Republican Party had its share of China critics as well, a mix of Pat Buchanan-style populists enraged by what they saw as America's slow surrender to a foreign power and aging Cold War hawks still worried about communism's godless advance. But as globalization shifted into overdrive during the Clinton and Bush years, these voices found themselves in the minority. There was too much money to be made. U.S. corporations and their shareholders liked the reduced labor costs and soaring profits that resulted from shifting production to China. U.S. farmers liked all the new Chinese customers buying their soybeans and pork. Wall Street firms liked the scores of Chinese billionaires looking to invest their newfound wealth, as did the slew of lawyers, consultants, and lobbyists brought on to service the expanding U.S.-China commerce. Even as most congressional Democrats remained unhappy with China's trading practices and the Bush administration filed a handful of complaints against China with the WTO. By the time I took office, a rough consensus had emerged among U.S. foreign policy-making elites and big party donors. Instead of engaging in protectionism, America needed to take a page from the Chinese playbook if we wanted to stay number one, we needed to work harder, save more money, and teach our kids more math, science, engineering, and Mandarin. My own views on China did not fit neatly in any camp. I did not share my union supporters' instinctive opposition to free trade and I did not believe we could fully reverse globalization any more than it was possible to shut down the Internet. I thought that Clinton and Bush had made the right call in encouraging China's integration into the global economy. History told me that a chaotic and impoverished impoverished China posed a bigger threat to the United States than a prosperous one. I consider China's success at lifting hundreds of millions of people out of extreme poverty to be a towering human achievement. Still, the fact remained that China's Gaming of the international trading system 
had too often come at America's expense. Automation and advanced robotics may have been the bigger culprit in the decline of U.S. manufacturing jobs, but Chinese practices, with the help of corporate outsourcing, had accelerated those losses. The flood of Chinese goods into the United States had made flat-screen TVs cheaper and helped keep inflation low, but only at the price of depressing the wages of U.S. workers. I'd promised to fight on those workers' behalf for a better deal on trade, and I intended, intended to keep that promise. With the world's economy hanging by a thread, though, I had to consider when and how best to do that. China held more than $700 billion in U.S. debt and had massive foreign currency reserves, making it a necessary partner in managing the financial crisis. To pull ourselves and the rest of the world out of the recession, we needed China's economy growing, not contracting. China wasn't going to change its trading practices without firm pressure from my administration. I just had to make sure we did not start a trade war that tipped the world into a depression and harmed the very workers I had vowed to help. In the run-up to our China trip, my team and I settled on a strategy to thread the needle between too tough and not tough enough. We'd start by presenting President Hu with a list of problem areas we wanted to fix, wanted to see fixed over a realistic, realistic time frame while avoiding a public confrontation that might further spook the jittery financial markets if the Chinese failed to act. We'd steadily ratchet up the public pressure and take retaliatory actions Ideally, in an economic environment 
that was no longer so fragile. To nudge China toward better behavior, we also hoped to enlist the help of its neighbors. That was going to take some work. The Bush administration's total absorption with problems in the Middle East, as well as the Wall Street fiasco, had led some Asian leaders to question America's relevance in the region. Meanwhile, China's booming economy made even close U.S. allies like Japan and South Korea increasingly dependent on its markets and wary of getting on its bad side. The one thing we had going for us was that in recent years, China had started overplaying its hand, demanding one-sided concessions from weaker trading partners and threatening the Philippines and Vietnam over control of a handful of small but strategic islands in the South China Sea. U.S. diplomats reported a growing resentment towards such heavy-handed tactics and a desire for a more sustained American presence as a counterweight to Chinese power. To take advantage of this opening, we scheduled stops for me in Japan and South Korea, as well as a meeting in Singapore with the 10 countries that made up the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, ASEAN, A-S-E-A, in along the way I'd announced my intention to pick up the baton and on an ambitious new US Asia trade agreement with agreement the Bush administration had started to negotiate with an emphasis on locking in the types of enforceable labor and environmental provisions that Democrats and unions complained had been missing in previous deals like the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA. We explained to reporters that the overall goal of what we later called a quote, pivot to Asia, close quote, was not to contain China or stifle its growth. Rather, it was to reaffirm U.S. ties to the region and to strengthen the very framework of international law that had allowed countries throughout the Asia-Pacific region, including China, to make so much progress in such a short time.
I doubted the Chinese would see it that way. It had been more than 20 years since I'd traveled to Asia. Our seven-day tour started in Tokyo where I delivered a speech on the future of the U.S.-Japan alliance and met with Prime Minister Yukio Hatoyama to discuss the economic crisis in North Korea and the proposed relocation of the U.S. Marine Base in Okinawa. A pleasant, if awkward, fellow, Hatoyama, was Japan's fourth prime minister in less than three years, and the second since I'd taken office. A symptom of the sclerotic, aimless politics that had plagued Japan for much of the decade. He'd be gone seven months later. A brief visit with Emperor Akihito and Empress Michiko, Michiko at the Imperial Palace left a more lasting impression, diminutive and well into their seventies. They greeted me in impeccable English, with him dressed in a western suit and her in a brocaded silk kimono, and I bowed as a gesture of respect. They led me into a receiving room, cream-colored and sparsely decorated in the traditional Japanese style, and over tea they inquired about Michelle, the girls, and my impression of the U.S.-Japan relations. Their manners were at once formal and self-effacing, their voices soft as the patter of rain, and I found myself trying to imagine the emperor's life. What must it have been like? I wondered to be born to a father who'd been considered a god and then forced to assume a largely symbolic throne decades after the Japanese Empire had suffered its fiery defeat. The Empress's story interested me even more the daughter of a wealthy industrialist. She'd been educated in Catholic schools and graduated from college with a degree in English literature. She was also the first commoner in the 2,600-year history of the chrysanthemum throne to marry into the imperial family, a fact that endeared her to the Japanese public, but reputedly caused strains with her in-laws. 
as a departing gift. The Empress gave me a composition she'd written for the piano, explaining with surprising frankness how her love of music and poetry had helped her survive bouts of loneliness. Later, I learned that my simple bow to my elderly Japanese host had sent conservative commentators into a fit back home when one obscure blogger called it, quote, treasonous, close quote. His words got picked up and amplified in the mainstream press. Hearing all this, I pictured the emperor entombed in his ceremonial duties and the empress with her finely worn graying beauty and smile brushed with melancholy. And I wondered when exactly such a sizable portion of the American right had become so frightened and insecure that they'd completely lost their minds. <laughs>